Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice at the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm, ETSU's Bill Gatt College of Pharmacy. Today, I am joined by a guest, Maya Leva, who is a hematology oncology clinical pharmacy specialist for Innova Shar Cancer Institute and associate professor of pharmacy practice at West Coast University School of Pharmacy. Uh, welcome, Maya. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, wonderful to have you. So it, it is June, it is Pride Month, so we're going to talk about some, uh, some transgender cancer screening. Um, you spoke at HOPA, and as someone who, um, who I feel like follows oncology fairly closely, uh, learned some stuff that uh, I had never even considered, to be perfectly honest. So this is a, uh, so glad that you approached me about doing a podcast. I think this is some really important stuff. So, so let's just jump right into it. Uh, and talk about cancer screening and, and transgender um, patients. Uh, where should we start, Maya? Well, you know, one of the things that we can start with is just kind of talking about sort of overarching ideas around cancer screening um, in transgender and gender nonconforming, non-binary patients. And you're going to notice that I use sort of a lot of different language. So again, transgender, non-binary, gender nonconforming, in part because it's a really heterogeneous group of patients um, and people. Right. Uh, so, you know, just to kind of level set for people who maybe are not super familiar with all the terms, you know, the term transgender really revolves around a person um, whose gender identity is not concordant with their sex defined at birth. Um, and then for persons who are non-binary, you know, often feeling like they don't fall into either category of male or female. And then gender non-conforming is sort of our overarching umbrella for a lot of other uh, gender queer or gender diverse um, spectrums. So, you know, just kind of wanted to, to start off with that. Um, but again, you know, we can kind of talk a little bit about um, specific organ inventory and, you know, kind of get into some of those specifics. Yeah, excellent. You know, as, as you talk about the, the nuance there and the heterogeneity, it, um, you know, the first thing I think of is the, quote unquote, a cancer patient. And of course, different based on their comorbidities or performance status, even talking the same side disease, where they are in their cancer journey from initially diagnosed, their initial prognosis, how far they are through treatment all the way to either hopefully cure or going down a palliative route. You know, if you don't live and breathe in, in the cancer world, you just think that person has cancer. So to me, there was some analogy between, between the journey. Um, so let's start with breast cancer, which is, you know, one of the top four most common cancers. So let's start there um, with breast cancer screening in, um, uh, I'll let you pick if you want to start in trans women or trans men. Yeah. So, so actually before we kind of go into that, let's um, back up a little bit just in terms of general cancer risk uh, associated with transgender persons in part, because this will play into kind of the remainder of our discussion. Um, one thing, I guess the, the overarching question that I think all of us are trying to figure out still, and again, I do want to remind your listeners that there is a dearth of information um, out there globally, uh, unfortunately. And so we are kind of filling in some gaps here. But one of the things we ask generally are, are sex hormones carcinogens, right? Um, and certainly when we talk about, um, you know, trans women, and, and actually, let's start there to answer your question. So some of the things that we know um, there was actually a recent study done, you know, it was published uh, within the last probably couple of years in the Netherlands, and they actually looked at uh, a few thousand uh, trans women, and they wanted to assess kind of, you know, again, what the, what the risks were. Um, and 
essentially what they found was that 46, uh, the, the rate of breast cancer, and, and again, just to remind you, you know, these are generally luminal, luminal type, um, so overexpressing ERPR, um, they had a 46 times risk compared to their cisgender male counterparts. Um, still though, interestingly enough, you know, this number sounds huge, um, but it was still substantially lower than cisgender uh, women. So, you know, we know, we do know that estrogen is a driver um, in, in this, uh, you know, population of patients. And we also know that um, from this study, at least, you know, younger, they're more likely to present younger, um, although the screening guidelines really still start at 50, which is interesting. Um, and we also know that prolonged exposure, and again, kind of same risk factors for cisgender females, right? The longer that you have been exposed to estrogen, you, you know, your rates are higher. Um, and so the same holds true for trans women. So we know that typically speaking, the risk begins around five to 10 years of exposure um, to estradiol. Okay, so so when, um, sorry, my kid is coming down the steps here. So when would, <laughs> when would uh, you know, are there recommendations from any societies uh, about when to start screening? Yes. So again, there's some controversy here because even for cisgendered females, there's not concordance necessarily, right? In terms of when we start screening, um, depending on if you're average risk or, you know, um, above risk. And again, there's nuance there too, because these particular studies are not looking at specifically above risk, you know, if a person is BRCA positive, for example. Um, so typically the, the guidelines are basically you follow the United States uh, Preventive Task Force screening guidelines um, for trans women once they have reached the age of 50 and have had five years or more of exposure to uh, estradiol. Okay. So five years of, of hormonal mm -hmm. therapy then with estradiols when, and, and that age, and the age is probably a little bit fluid based on how, mm -hmm. uh, if you're a U.S. preventive task force or American cancer mm -hmm. society guideline, uh, exactly. subscriber, <laughs> so to speak, where you would start. But I guess the general, um, uh, theme is the longer estrogen therapy, the greater the risk, which is correct. Consistent biologically with what we know. Okay. Uh, what mm -hmm. about trans men? Yeah, so trans men, this is where it also gets a little bit interesting. Um, so we do know that within that same study, they actually looked at about 1,200 trans men, and they found that there were higher rates um, uh, compared to cisgendered men, um, but significantly lower risk than cisgender women. So again, you know, this is going to be dependent also on the type of hormonal therapy, when it starts, um, and then also what part, you know, what... Um, kind of gender affirming surgery a person has, right? So one of the things to consider is that a number of trans men may seek out chest surgery or top surgery, and that's usually referred to as a subcutaneous mastectomy. So, you know, the vast majority of the breast tissue is removed, but there still may be some remaining. And of course, again, if a person's genetic, you know, profile, there's a risk associated with it, um, you know, it may be a little bit different, but we do know that generally speaking, testosterone replacement or, you know, gender affirming hormone therapy for trans men does seem to lower the risk, uh, total risk compared there, to cisgender women, mm -hmm. but not, but not eliminate any risk. No. And actually, if you think about it also, there may be, it, it may be sneakier presentation, right. And some of these patients, because again, they may not necessarily feel a mass, um, and performing a mammogram or or any kind of examination of a person who did not have uh, breasts is challenging, right? So 
that means that their primary care providers and you know the persons who are responsible for, for providing them care uh, need to be aware of some of those nuances as well. Uh, absolutely, and and certainly seems like a risk of of patients you know falling through the cracks, so to speak, with traditional screening uh, recommendations. Anything else on breast cancer uh, risk reduction before or screening before we move on? Yeah, you know, I would just say sort of generally, um, one of the challenges in the transgender population period is having access to high quality screening and also having providers who are comfortable talking to patients about where they are in their, um, you know, in their transition uh, or where they are in their, their gender journey. Um, and so, you know, again, I think it's really important that we emphasize, um, you know, screening for these populations and that we also make sure that these campaigns look like how they look like, right? So that's one of the challenges is that breast cancer is highly gendered, although we know, of course, that, you know, at least four or 5% of breast cancer cases um, in the United States are cisgendered males, right? Um, so, you know, I think, again, just being able to kind of shift that focus and, and be able to target some of these communities may really help increase awareness because a lot of persons and, you know, patients I've talked to uh, who are trans men, especially like, oh, well, I've, I've had a mastectomy, you know, my risk is gone. Um, I don't, I don't have to worry about this anymore. And unfortunately, that's not entirely true. Um, so that's just something that really needs to be communicated. Absolutely. And just to, you know, for, for, for cisgender women who say are maybe high risk bracket, even, mm -hmm. you know, a prophylactic bilateral mastectomy, there's still a mm -hmm. risk that breast cancer may have been there and already spread and, and, you know, has already, you know, there's already micrometastatic disease somewhere else, even after a prophylactic uh, treatment, like a, a bilateral mastectomy. Okay. Absolutely. Shall we transition to the prostate? Prostate cancer. Yes. This was really fascinating when you talked about the PSA thresholds here for prostate cancer screening. Yeah. And, you know, I, I unfortunately, I want to emphasize that there's still a lot of controversy around this too. Um, part of that recommendation of that upper limit of normal came from a study that was published in 2010. Um, and one of the things that they found was that, um, you know, they looked at uh, 320 uh, Belgian trans women who were above the age of 50. And these persons had had gender affirming surgery, which often includes, of course, an orchiectomy, which would substantially drop testosterone levels, as well as persons who were receiving gender affirming care. And what they found is that their median PSA was 0 0.03 nanograms per ml. Um, and so, you know, that's pretty low, right? Um, and other publications have actually kind of corroborated that. So because of that, the idea is that if a person you know, is receiving androgen deprivation therapy, for example, which is very common um, for persons who've not yet had an orchiectomy. Typically in the United States, we use spironolactam um, until that person actually goes forward with the, the procedure. Um, so we, we know that these persons, if they get diagnosed, they're, they're going to be castrate resistant already, right? So one of the other interesting things besides the PSA levels is that we know that um, there may be a lower absolute risk for trans women to develop prostate cancer, but when they do, it tends to be more aggressive and in part maybe because of that PSA level that's being missed. Yeah. And, and certainly there are echoes of the, uh, you know, the, um, uh, I can't remember this study, but the finasteride, dutasteride prostate cancer mm -hmm. risk reduction studies where there was an overall decreased risk in prostate cancer, but a higher risk of high grade prostate cancer, probably because, uh, you know, you're, while you're, um, depriving a, a, uh, an androgen driven cancer environment, you are then in essence promoting an androgen resistant environment 
uh, in those in those individuals. So uh, I would have, I mean, even for for cisgender men, the, the standard or the guideline is not necessarily screening, but talk about screening. It's, yeah, it's very, it's just talk about screening. Um, right. So I'd imagine it's something similar for these individuals as well. It is exactly. So, you know, the, the recommendations are identical to uh, the recommendations for cisgendered men, uh, you know, with the difference just being this upper limit of normal. Um, and interestingly enough too, you know, the testosterone environment, the castrate environment that many of these patients kind of get to is actually below three, which is substantially lower than even 20, right? When we talk about kind of ultra castrate. Um, so again, we know that exactly to your point, that testosterone is not driving this process. Um, and, you know, one other thing I want to note too about screening for persons, for, for trans women who've actually had the gender assignment surgery, um, so they may have a vaginoplasty, um, it actually changes a little bit the confirmation of where the prostate's located. And so in addition to having a lower level of PSA that we need to watch out for, um, a digital neovaginal wall exam is more effective than a digital rectal exam. Okay. Okay. So, and again, just to remind everyone that the prostate is not removed during uh, gender assignment surgery. Okay. I was, I was going to, I was going to ask that mm -hmm. question. If that was a, if there was a, if it was never done, sometimes done mm -hmm. always. Okay. Gotcha. Very good. Uh, okay. Very good. So kind of, kind of in summary, you know, uh, the trans women born with prostate transition uh, to, to female, um, still have the prostate, but on androgen deprivation therapy, you would expect the PSA to be lower. So even a normal quote, unquote, normal PSA of mm -hmm. say 3.3 would be alarming in somebody like that. Absolutely. And, you know, there, there were some case reports, again, collected over the last few years, looking at um, the, the levels of PSA in trans women who were diagnosed with prostate cancer. And interestingly enough, you know, those, of course, with metastatic disease were fairly correlative with um, what you would see in a cisgendered man, again, dependent on disease activity and burden. Um, but the numbers were still a bit lower, right? So again, this kind of correlates with us sort of beating it into people um, and in EHRs, you know, making sure to call out that number uh, so that providers are aware. Yeah. Okay, Maya, we've talked a lot about how, you know, maybe some gray areas, lack of consensus. <laughs> I feel like we're going to get even more into a lack of consensus. Uh, now it's talking about cervical cancer screening. Yes, yes. So in terms of cervical cancer screening, you know, this is, this is really complex in part because it is such an intimate exam um, for the person. And, you know, just kind of reminding the listeners too, that the LGBTQ plus community is, is a historically marginalized community with also a lot of intersectionality of race, you know, ethnicity, um, every kind of thing you can think of, right? We, we all experience it. Um, and so what, what one of the challenges with cervical cancer screening typically is also that this community tends to come with a lot of trauma. Um, and we do see unfortunately higher rates of sexual assault among persons who identify as transgender, um, which, really also tends to prevent people from coming to seek care. So that's, you know, that's kind of part of it. But in terms of, you know, the screening itself, the guidelines really do follow for trans men should be identical to uh, cisgender women. The difference though is again, organ inventory, right? So if a person still retains their cervix, um, then we're gonna follow those guidelines. If a person has had their cervix removed and, you know, potentially has had a, a bottom surgery or total hysterectomy, 
Um, those two things are actually exclusive, right? Um, you can have a, a bottom surgery where there's a phallus created um, and patients often also will have, um, you know, ovaries and uterus and, and cervix removed. Um, so those are concordant, but in terms of the way we uh, get the samples, that's where I think a little bit of that, that kind of controversy comes into play um, for supporting that patient population. Okay. Um, anything else about cervical cancer screening you want to mention? Yeah. So one thing that's really important to note too, is that when persons are being exposed to testosterone, you get pretty substantial tissue changes, um, in, in the vaginal wall. And so, you know, patients will have thinning, they may not be able to produce as much lubrication. And so in addition to, you know, complicating the quality of the exam, um, if a person's able to tolerate it, it can also, again, decrease tolerance, right? So we know already from numerous studies that, you know, uh, trans men, unfortunately, tend to have very high failure rates of, of collection, um, you know, when, when a pap smear is done. And so some of the ways that we've been kind of exploring, expanding our current practice of using a speculum and, you know, having a, a, a provider actually collect the sample, you know, we can use self swabs. Um, and there's some good evidence that, that there's pretty good um, correlation between healthcare provider and patient uh, collected swabs. And then also, you know, just recently in JAMA in 2021, there was a uh, article about collecting menstrual blood and using that for um, determining if a person has high risk uh, HPV DNA. So, you know, there are other options. One other option to help support this patient population prior to a planned pap smear, again, if they still have their cervix, is to prescribe, uh, you know, vaginal estrogen for a week or two prior. Uh, and that also will help to increase the um, quality and the experience for the person. Okay, that's a useful uh, clinical pearl there. Okay, mm -hmm. are we ready to talk about anal cancer screening? Yes. So this is really controversial. <laughs> um, you know, and I think, uh, again, kind of want to emphasize that this isn't necessarily just specific to the LGBTQ plus community, right? We, we're seeing a pretty substantial rise in anal cell uh, carcinoma, especially again, associated with HPV, um, and not necessarily in people who have anal receptive intercourse, right? So we know that there are just certain patient populations that are at risk anyway, transplant patients, uh, patients with HIV, we know that, you know, female identified uh, cisgender women, again, we're starting to see an increase. So we don't have any national guidelines for screening at this point. Um, there are some recommendations that are kind of floating out there, but, you know, one of the things that I'm hoping to see is really, again, an expansion of these anal cancer screening guidelines um, for the general population, uh, but also recognizing too that, you know, again, when we talk about the transgender gender non-conforming um, population of patients, as well as, you know, just the LGBTQ plus community in general, we do see more of those situated vulnerabilities that do increase the risk of HPV associated cancers and certainly anal cancer is one of them. Yeah. Um, well, well, thanks Maya for those, uh, for that information, um, about, uh, cancer screening in, in this community. You know, one of the things we've, you, you mentioned is, is, uh, the marginalized aspect of this community and, uh, to me, that would suggest that if anyone looked at, say, rates of colon cancer screening, for example, um, that that was probably lower in this patient population. Uh, are there data that, that show that? Yeah. So just generally speaking, we know that um, based on a number of different things, uh, poverty, you know, socioeconomic status, access to healthcare, all of that, 
that general screening is much lower in the LGBTQ plus patient population. And in fact, um, you know, and I can't quote all the numbers off the top of my head, but the LGBT cancer network uh, actually just published within the last year or so, a pretty comprehensive survey um, of LGBTQ plus persons in the US. And I believe they also found there was like high rates of avoidance, seeking out care for a number of reasons, um, you know, not being able to afford care, not having, you know, living in a medical desert, essentially, where you don't have access to um, very safe, kind of uh, friendly, you know, LGBTQ plus friendly uh, screening. So, you know, again, we also know that based on some smaller studies retrospectively that persons in the LGBTQ plus community who get diagnosed with cancer tend to get diagnosed later, which means again, you know, we have higher rates of mortality. All right, thank you. So uh, again, our guest is Maya Leva uh, from uh, the uh, Innova Shar Cancer Institute and associate professor at West Coast University School of Pharmacy. Thank you, Maya. Thank you so much. Thank you.